Well, one day, a father and his young son were out fishing, and as they were sitting in the boat, the little boy became curious as to the world all around him. And so he asked his father, he said, uh, he said, Dad, how does a boat float? And the father thought for a moment, and he said, Son, I'm not really sure how to answer that. The boy was quiet for a bit, and he then said, Dad, how, how do fish breathe underwater? The father said, son, I don't rightly know. Little boy was quiet for a little while longer, and then he said, dad, why is the sky blue? And he said, son, I don't know how to answer that either. Now, after a few more moments of silence, the little boy worried that he might be bothering his father. So he said, dad, do you, do you mind me asking all these questions? And he said, no, son, how else are you going to learn anything? <laughs> now... Unlike the fictional father in my joke there, as we turn in our Bible today to James chapter 1, what we're going to see is that we have a heavenly father by the name of God who is able to not only answer our questions but is able to provide what we need in those times where we aren't even really sure what the questions should be. This is why James tells us in James chapter 1 and verses 5 through 8, but if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man uh, ought to not expect that he, will be, that he will receive anything from the Lord, being, double, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." Now, before we get into verses 6 through 8, which tells us how to ask, what we need to do is understand what it is that we're being told to ask for. The word for wisdom is this Greek word sophia. Now, we could get into a long, rambling discussion philosophically about what is wisdom and and these type of things. But rather than doing that, what I want to do is just let the context of our passage define it for us. If you were here last week, you'll recall that James, we saw, was writing to an audience of primarily Jewish believers. These were the early Christians who had come to faith around 45 AD. And this early church gathering of believers was being scattered. The diaspora was taking place. Persecutions were pushing them out of their homes, pushing them far away, uh, much like what we see in the news today. And as they were being scattered, as they uh, were going through these difficult trials, we saw as we walked through the opening verses of James that God was at work. He was using the trials that they and many of us today face to do his work, his work in refining us as believers. We saw in verse 3 that by knowing the process as well as the purpose that God has for us, it will help us to remain under these difficult times, to stay in the refining fire, to bear up under the load, where our faith will be developed, where we will be matured as men and women, boys and girls who are believers in Jesus Christ. And we saw that this will allow us to have joy even in the midst of the junk as we understand that this endurance is developing for us spiritual muscles, much like an athlete will endure the pain and the training in order to produce uh, the championship level of performance. So when it comes to wisdom here, it's not merely an acquisition of information or facts. Uh, Rather, it's as Webster's defines wisdom. It is the ability 
to make the right use of knowledge. The ability to make the right use of knowledge. Now, I'm not sure who the author is who gives us this definition, but they say knowledge is the ability to take things apart, while wisdom is the ability to put them back together. Wisdom is the ability to put them back together. And in the context of our passage, I want to remind you that life seemed to be falling apart for those who were following Jesus Christ. And what they were being told to pray for was God's perspective, to have God's wisdom, to understand the purpose that God was working out in and through them as they were going through these tough times being refined in their walk with the Lord. In the 1800s, there was a Christian blacksmith who was going through a great deal of adversity. And there was a non-believer in this uh, smaller town that knew he was a, a, a devout believer. And, and he came to this blacksmith and he said, uh, if God is real and loves you like you say, then why is your life so hard? And this Christian blacksmith said, well, I don't reckon that I can give you an answer that will satisfy you. But the one that satisfies me that I can hold on to is seen in the type of work I do. He said, you see, as a, as a blacksmith, I often take a piece of iron and I put it into the fire until it's white hot. And then I put it on the anvil and I strike it once or twice to see if it will take a temper. And if I think it will, then I plunge it into the water. And then I take it back out and I put it in the fire again and heat it. And then I plunge it back in the water. And he says, I continue this process over and over as I hammer on it, as I shape it and bend it and rasp and file it. And I make some useful article like a, this piece of metal here that I'm working on that will go in this carriage and it will, it will have a, a useful life of about 25 years doing great work. And he said, I believe that my heavenly father has been testing me to see if I'll take a temper. He's put me into the fire and into the water. He's hammered on me. And I've tried to bear it as patiently as I could. And he said, my daily prayer has been, Lord, put me into the fire if you will. Put me into the water if you think I need it. Do anything you please, O Lord. Only for Christ's sake, don't throw me into the scrap heap. Brothers and sisters, some of you this morning have been in the fire. Some of you have been getting hammered on. Some of you have been going through very hard things. And I know from personal experience how hard that can be. And while our natural inclination as believers is to pray, Lord, take me out of the fire. Lord, make my life easy. What God wants us to do is have wisdom to understand the purpose and the process that God is taking us through. And in those times, rather than praying, Lord, help me get out of this, it, our prayer should instead be, Lord, help me to get through this. Help me to be grown and developed and molded as you want. Lord, don't waste what I'm going through in my life. Use it for your purpose, for your glory. You know, rather than frantically trying to figure everything out by ourselves or, or trying to get some easy answer from Dr. Phil or Oprah, we're to go to the one who is the source of all wisdom, that is God himself. In Proverbs 9.10, what we're told is that the fear or literally reverence of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9.10. This is what wisdom is. It is the fear of the Lord. It is, that is where the beginning of wisdom is. It is the knowledge of the Holy One that is understanding. And as James tells us to pray for wisdom, this is what he wants for us to have. This is what he's calling us to ask God for. 
to know God, to know his plan and purpose for us. And as we do this, it will help us to grow and go through these things. And as we go to God asking for wisdom, James tells us here in verse 5 that God will give to us generously. The word means without reserve. He tells us as well that uh, we are to, as we ask God, he will give to us without reproach. The Greek word here means without showing teeth. Without showing teeth in the sense of, have you ever seen an animal that growls at you? You know? And it is saying that God will not growl at us. He will not withhold wisdom. And when we come to him, he, he won't be like the type of person who says, okay, I'm going to do this grudgingly. They grit their teeth and they say, this better be the last time you ask for this, right? I won't do this again. That's not what God does. That's not his character. God is not one who is stingy and says, you get just a little thimble full. Instead, he gives to us generously. He gives to us without reproach. There is this joy and overflowing measure. We see this in Ephesians 3.20 where it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. The character of God is one who gives. We see this all throughout the scriptures. You can read Acts 17.25 and it says that God gives us life and breath and everything else. We see the loving and generous and giving character of God in John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This great gift of eternal life given to us freely by his grace and mercy. We find it in Romans 8.32, where it says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give all things? Ken Hughes says, God is like a pitcher, tilted toward his children, just waiting to pour out wisdom over the trial-parched landscape of their lives, if they will but ask. As we're going through this drought here in San Antonio, we know what a a dry, parched ground looks like. And you can imagine that that life-giving water being poured out. Now, because God gives generously, I think we need to take the picture up a level. If you've ever been to uh, Six Flags, you know that they have this, this big hat out there that fills up with water in their water park and you can run up under it and it pours hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water over you. So rather than a a pitcher filled with water pouring out over you, this is a better picture of what God gives to us. He says, those of you who will come to me and ask will receive this overflowing blessing of wisdom in your life. Now, as you look at your own life today, do you need wisdom? I need wisdom. We need wisdom in so many places, our workplaces, our schools. We need it in our homes to know how to be better parents, how to have marriages like God desires for us. We need wisdom in the hard things we face from our finances to our health. Is there some hard thing or decision that you're facing today where you need wisdom? Friends, we don't have to gut it out. We don't have to try to guess what it is that we should be doing. Instead, we are called to go to God who will give to us what we need. President Abraham Lincoln once said, I've been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. Can you identify with those words? Is your wisdom lacking? 
Is the wisdom of others around you, the counselors and answers you've sought, has it fallen short? God offers us hope. He gives us the promise that if we will come to him and ask for his help, he will give it to us. Now, as we go to God and ask, verses 6 through 8 tell us there is a condition. It says, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like uh, the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought to not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, when it says that we must have faith and not doubt, let me first say what this is not. What this is not. This is not telling us that we have to have a perfect faith where there is no doubt. If you were with us last time, we looked at this Greek word teleos. It was in James 1.4. It shows up again in verse 17 and James 1.25 and 2.22 and 3.2. And this word has this meaning of perfect or finished. But we saw that as believers, we will not be perfect and finished in the sense of a, a, a perfected faith until we walk through the gates of heaven. So what is in view here, not is it we have to have uh, a type of faith that is perfect. You know, one of my things that really boils my blood is these, these TV-type shysters, these prosperity preachers, these false faith healers, the ones that you will see that tell you, well, you know, you didn't receive that because you didn't sow the right seed. You didn't have enough faith. Or, you know, if you had only had more faith, you could have been healed. Friends, that is bad theology. That is bogus. That is not what the Bible teaches us. If you want to see what God says about having faith, when it comes to asking for things like healing, uh, you can read so many passages in the scripture. One is Mark chapter 9. There, there was a man who came to Jesus and he had a son who was possessed by demons. And this, he was being brutalized and thrown into fires and suffering physically and going through all kinds of hard things. And this man came to Jesus. And he says in Mark nine twenty two through 24, he says, if... If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can. He says, all things are possible to him who believes. And listen to the father's response. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. He did not have a perfect faith. He was a man who was struggling, and he said, God, I need your help. Another passage we can go to is in Acts chapter 12, where we find where the apostle Peter has been arrested and facing death. The, the believers, you'll remember, gather together for prayer. There's this prayer meeting. It's going on all night. Peter is in jail. He's chained. He's about to be killed. And in Acts 12, 13, it says right before that, God sent an angel and he released Peter from prison. And Peter is, suddenly finds himself out on the street. And he goes to the house where these believers are gathered in earnest prayer. He knocks on the door and this servant girl comes to the door, fearing it's the authorities. Who is it? And Peter says, it's me. Now, it's funny, you know, Peter's running from them, he's there, she leaves him outside in the street. She runs back to everybody, they're praying, oh Lord, please release Peter, we, we want you to do this. And she says, Peter's outside the door, he's here. And they go, oh no, 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 he, that, that has to be his ghost, he's already dead. They're praying for it, they don't even believe it could happen. Peter's outside the door going, hello, let me in. And they're all going, God, release him. Oh, well, he's dead, you can't do it, God. There's unbelief. 
in the midst of their prayer. Now, in contrast to these places, we see uh, where, uh, where answered prayer happened in the midst of unbelief. There are those who have great faith that didn't have their prayer answered the way that they wanted. One is with the Apostle Paul. You can read 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had some severe ailment. He called it his thorn in the flesh. Scholars debate whether it was a physical infirmity, some type of oppression, other things. The bottom line is Paul had some significant and severe limitation. And, and he was praying to God to have this removed from him. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 says, Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. He's in fervent prayer, persistent prayer. And God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul says, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then... I am strong. Paul had this perspective that we are called on to have today and that we saw last week where we are to pray for God's wisdom, to see, God, what is your purpose? How are you working in this? God, how can you be glorified? How can you grow me to use me in new and better ways? What we're talking about can be illustrated by what a man saw one day when he was hiking through a logging area. This backpacker was in a, a back river area and he came across a, a logging area and he saw a man, a lumberjack standing on the riverbank and his logs that had been cut further up were flowing down the river. He was standing there with a long pole with a pike on the end. And as he surveyed the logs as they came by, periodically he would reach out with this, this pole and he would stab one of these logs and he would drag it over into this side area where they were pulling these out and the other logs continued to float on down by the stream. Now, this backpacker was fascinated by this because he sat there for, for a while watching this and, you know, hundreds of logs were floating by and every now and then he would pick one out and finally the backpacker walks up to this man. He's curious and he says, excuse me, sir. He said, what are you doing? Why, why are you pulling these logs out? He said, they all look the same to me. And, and the lumberjack says to the man, uh, they may look the same to you, but I can tell the ones that are different. He said, the ones that I'm letting float by, these are, these are trees that have grown up in the valley just a short distance from here. They've been sheltered by the, the valley uh, all their, the, the lifetime that they were growing up. And so the, the trees have a very coarse grain. He said, but these, these that I'm pulling aside here, these are from high up on the mountain." These are those that were exposed to the storms as the wind and the, the things would buffet them. The, the trees would develop a very fine grain as they went through the storms. And he said, these, they're, they're choice. They're too good for regular work. So we set these aside for choice work. God does that with us as well. There are those that he allows to be buffeted, to go through extreme trials and what he is doing is developing in us a fine grain, something that makes us choice, something that makes us able to be used in ways that, that others who have not gone through the same trials are able to go through. As Paul went through the storms, God was preparing him for choice work. 
And God wants to do the same thing with us if we will let ourselves go through it, as we saw last time in verse 2. We saw there that we are to let God's work accomplish its purpose, that we are to cooperate with God as he is growing us. As we go through this, they will not be wasted. Now, for those who are unwilling to go through it, for those who are not willing to hold on to God, to go through his, his refining process, they are simply tossed about by the storm, as we see here in verses 6 through 8. It says, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought to not expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, there's a debate here as to whether this is speaking of a believer or an unbeliever. This word is only used uh, two times in the Bible. And as we find it later in James, it is there tied in with sinners. And so some say this, this is not a Christian. This is a person who, who appears to be a believer. Others will say, no, this is a Christian, but he or she is living like an unbeliever. Either way that you take it, It accomplishes the same thing. What it says is, if we're unwilling to go through the storms, to go through the maturing and building up of our faith as we are refined, we will waste those things. We will simply be like a a little cork that is out at sea, bobbing around in the midst of the waves, being tossed here and there with nothing coming from it. In Ephesians chapter 4, we find a similar picture where Paul spoke of the need for us to grow in maturity. It says in Ephesians four thirteen through 15, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That is the goal. And it says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. You see, what James is talking about here is not simply being unsure. It is the picture of a person who's straddling the fence and trying to play both sides. And what he says is, you can't do that. He describes this deep-seated kind of doubt as being double-minded. Now, the word that James uses here is a very unique word. James seems to have invented the word because it doesn't show up in any Greek literature, biblical or otherwise, until after James writes it. This word is uh, daisukos. It means double-minded, doubting, hesitating. It's only used two times in the whole Bible. And as I said, it doesn't show up in extra-biblical literature until after James coined this word. The word literally means two-souled, two-souled. This this is a word um, that, that denotes, one commentator, Hebert, says, it denotes the doubter's divided attitude. He acts as though two distinct souls or personalities are in his body in perpetual conflict with each other. The one is turned Godward, while the other is turned toward the world. The one believes in God, but the other disbelieves. Barclay offers us this picture. He says, he is a walking civil war in which trust and distrust of God wage a continual battle against each other. If you've ever read Paul Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, he is the pattern for the character that is called Mr. Facing Both Ways. 
He has a sense of what is right, but a love for what is wrong. One moment they are obedient, another moment they are following their own ways. Consequently, a double-minded person is one who wants his or her will, and at the same time, God's will. A person who wants his or her will, and yet at the same time, God's will. Maybe you've heard about how native hunters will catch a monkey. What they will do is they will take a, something like a gourd or a coconut and they will cut a hole in it just big enough for a small monkey's hand to reach into. And then they will uh, attach this to a tree and they, they put in this gourd or coconut uh, a pretty shiny object. Monkeys are fascinated and drawn to these things and so they'll put one of these in the coconut And as the animal comes by and it looks in and it sees that, it wants it. And so it reaches its hand in there and it grabs it. Now, as soon as the monkey makes a fist around it, guess what happens? It can't get its hand out of the coconut. It's trapped. And as the monkey is there, there's this battle that takes place. It wants the thing in the gourd, but as long as it holds on to it, it can't get away. And the hunters will calmly walk up on the monkey. And as they do so, these monkeys will be screaming and and chattering. and, And, you know, and all the monkey has to do is let the thing go. It can pull its hand out and run away. But it will not do it. It stays there holding on to the thing. And they throw a net over it and capture the monkey. You see, the, the monkey lacks the wisdom to know that all it has to do is let go of the thing and it can have freedom. And instead, what it chooses to do is to hold on to it because it wants what is inside. And that's the double-minded Christian. Inside the gourd is my will. Yes, part of me wants God's will, but inside is what I want. And so what we do is we hold on to something. And God says, if you will simply let go of that, and you will instead grab on to me and my will, you will have freedom. And you will have something so much better than a shiny little trinket that the world offers to you. When trials come, I can guess what to do. I can try to gut it out, or I can release my grip, and I can go to God. And I can say, God, what do you want me to learn? What do you want me to do in this? What are you trying to do with me? That is wisdom. As you look at your own life today, what are you grabbing for? Is it your will? Or are you willing to let go and say, God, your will be done in my life? As I ask that question, it doesn't mean that as believers, there will never be this clash of our will with God's will. Read about Jesus Christ, God's son, God himself. As he knelt in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read in Mark chapter 14 and verses 34 through 36, it says that as Jesus knelt, knowing he was facing the cross as he was going to go through the horrible crucifixion, the suffering, the pain, all that it involved, it says that his, he, he said in prayer, Lord, I am anguished. My spirit, my soul is anguished. So great was the struggle that we're told that he was sweating literal drops of blood. And as Jesus is battling his will versus God's will, he says, God, if it is possible, let this cup, this cup of suffering pass from me. But then Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done, God. 
Jesus was willing to see the clash of the two come together. And he said, I will release what I want for what you want, God, because I know the purpose. I know the plan. I know why I'm here. And and it is to go to the cross and it is to suffer a horrible death, to pay the penalty of death owed for sins. And God, I am willing for your will to be done, not mine, to escape the suffering that I'm facing. The prayer of wisdom is about God's will, not ours. And faith is about trusting God enough to do what he wants. It doesn't mean we never doubt. It doesn't mean that we're, we're not unsure. Again, it is all about this battle of our two wills. And a double-minded man or woman is a person who says, what I want is as much as important as what God wants. And when our wills clash, we try to go both sides of the fence. And God says, you cannot do it. We can't take two roads. The picture uh, in a believer's life cannot be this. We can't say, well, you know, two roads diverged in the wood and I, I took them both. It's not what Robert Frost said and it's not what we are able to do. And when we try to take two roads at once, we cannot do it. And if you try to do that, the picture that we are given is that instead we will look like this. We end up going everywhere. And just as that sign says, good luck, you can't do it. It's not going to happen. Because what happens is we're told that we end up being tossed in the waves of the storm and like a bobbing cork, we're here, there, we're everywhere, we're up, we're down, we're whipped this way, we're whipped that way. And like a ship that is spinning without any moorings, that picture there in Ephesians, it was a nautical term when it says that we are whirled about. It means literally that the ship's rudder is broken, the sails are down, it is out of control, and it is at the mercy of the storm. But when we are mature, when we are grown, when we measure the fullness of the stature of Christ, when we have our faith as our foundation, this is the picture that God gives to us. The storm may rage, the waves are there, the rocks are there, there is danger. But God says wisdom is the lighthouse that gives us the direction to the safe harbor that helps us to know how to go through the storm and to arrive at where God wants us to be. That goal of growing us up. As Ephesians 4.14 said, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. God's wisdom helps us to find the way in the midst of the storm. The Greek word for storm here is kludon. It's used in James 1.6 and it is used again in Luke 8.24. In Luke 8.24, you remember the disciples were on a boat and the storm was so severe, they woke Jesus up and they said, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? God, we are dying. Get up, do something. And Jesus calmed the storm. And it says they were amazed. Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? He is God, not a mere man. In Matthew 14, 22 through 33, there was another fierce storm. This time Jesus wasn't in the boat. The disciples, you'll recall, were going across the the sea there and, and Jesus came walking across the water. And they saw him and they screamed, who is it? What is it? They thought it was a spirit and it was Jesus. And Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, then command me to come. Jesus said, come, Peter. And Peter got out of the boat and he began to walk on the water. And do you remember what happened? 
Peter was doing fine as long as he had his eyes on Christ. But as soon as he took his eyes off of Christ and he looked at the wind and the waves and the storm around him, what happened to him? He began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached down and he pulled Peter out of the water. And do you remember the first thing he said to him? Peter, Peter, where's your faith? Why did you doubt? When Peter became double-minded, eyes on God, eyes on the storm, he began to drown. And the same thing happens to us. It's why, as we saw last week in Hebrews 12 too, it told us that we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him went to the cross. We are to have our eyes on the one. We are to have the wisdom to know where we can go in the midst of the storm. And as we keep our eyes on God, as we recognize his purpose in our life, we can go through the storm. What God wants us to do is to cut across the currents and live for him. You see, we live in a world with strong tides that tempt us to go with the flow. The problem with that is if we do, we're going to find rocks and rip currents that can sink our ship. Russ Metcalf once said, I found that tides and currents do not determine destination. That is what rudders, engines, and sails are for. While you don't dare ignore the tides and currents, you also never get anywhere if you let them direct your, if you let them dictate your direction. He says, when you can, you make them serve you as you use them to go where you want. But when you can't, you learn to cut across them as best you can, always with your destination in mind. Seneca once said, you must know which harbor you're headed for if you are to catch the right wind to reach it. You must know the harbor you're headed for if you're going to catch the right wind to reach it. And what God says for us, brothers and sisters, is wisdom is knowing the right harbor. It's knowing what God is doing and where we need to be going. We go to him for wisdom. We go to him for the strength. We go to him to be the safe harbor in the storm, recognizing what he is doing, refining, building, growing us. And it is because of that that we are able to go through it, to endure it. We are to set our sails in such a way we can catch the winds that the Holy Spirit has for us to move us to where God wants us to be, mature men and women, as we journey with Jesus. And as we head in that direction, God will give us wisdom to know the way. Bob Murnford has written a book called Take Another Look at Guidance. And in it, he tells of a harbor in Italy that can only be reached by going up a narrow channel. And this channel has rocks and and hidden areas and things that have sunk many ships over the years. And to overcome this and guide the ship safely into port, they've installed a system of three lights that are on these huge poles. And the main light is this big blinking light. And the other two are colored lights. And as a ship's pilot approaches this narrow channel, what they must do is steer the boat in a way that brings all three of these lights in line with each other. And when they can see only this one light, the other two lined up with the big blinking light, they know they're in the safe channel and they can go. But if they see two, if they see two or three, they're off course and they're in danger of being shipwrecked. Now, when it comes to seeking wisdom, the same picture is given to us as God guides us. The main light we have is this, God's word. God has given us his word. This is the blinking light. Everything we need for life, this is the instruction manual. And God says when we follow this, 
When we listen to what he says, we will have the wisdom to live our lives. Now, God has given us other lights to help line up sometimes. We read this and we say, I'm not really sure what I should be doing. Well, another light is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the author of the book. He directed men as they wrote God's word. And so we can pray to the Holy Spirit for wisdom to know, what does this say? God, would you lead and guide me? As Christians, we're told that the Holy Spirit lives within us. It says, do you not know your body is a temple of the Lord and that the Spirit of God lives within you? Now, let me warn you of something. As people, sometimes uh, I will talk to individuals who will say to me, well, you know, the Holy Spirit told me this. And I'll say, well, hold on a second. What you're telling me the Holy Spirit told you is not lining up with the blinking light. The Bible is clear. God will never contradict himself. As God who wrote this book that we have called the Bible... The Holy Spirit will never give you direction that is not in line with this. So if somebody says the Holy Spirit's telling me to do this and it is not lining up with the blinking light, that's not the Holy Spirit you're hearing from. And you need to reject that. Now, the third light that is given to us sometimes is called uh, another mature man or woman. I've never had the privilege of having the Holy Spirit audibly speak to me. I've heard people who say they have. I've never had that experience. But I have had the experience of God speaking through other wise men and women, mature believers who will come and say, may I offer you some counsel? And what I do with the counsel that they give to me, again, is I put it in line with this. If it is ever in in contradiction to the blinking light of God's word, then I immediately say to them, thank you for your advice, but I'm going to ignore it. Because again, God will never give direction that is not in line with the direction he's already given to us. So as you go through life, as you're experiencing you know, problems or issues and you're saying, what do I need to do? The first thing you go to is the blinking light. And then you go to God himself and you say, God, you wrote this. You, you live within me. Would you help direct me? And then you listen to those who are godly men and women, those who are mature in their faith, who are able to come along. And if those three things line up, then you know the way that you need to go. But if anything is in contradiction to this, then you're in danger of being shipwrecked. As we end today, I have a question for you. Where are you headed? Where are you headed today? Have you chosen to follow God? Or have you chosen the folly of the world and what it offers? You can't walk more than one road. So I invite you today to take the road, the road that Jesus Christ provides, where he says in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you're here today and you've never taken that first step of faith, if you've never gotten on the road that leads not only to eternal life, but the stability that you need in this life, I invite you today to go to God and to say to him, God, today I want to be one who becomes a follower of you. You can pray a prayer something like this. Lord, I am a sinner and I need to be forgiven. When we say we are a sinner, we're acknowledging we have done some things in our life that are wrong. We've made mistakes. And the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. It goes on to tell us in Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Jesus paid that penalty 
of death for us, and he offers it to you. So you go to God and you say, God, I am a sinner, and I need to be forgiven. Today I am turning from my sins into you, Jesus Christ, to be my Savior. Lord, will you come into my life? Will you save me today? I want to follow you. I want to be a part of the family of God. So today, God, I am giving my life to you. If you'd like to do that, I invite you to just bow your heads with me and to pray this prayer, to let God know that today you want to follow him, that you want to get on the right road, that you want not only his wisdom for living, but you want the gift of eternal life that he offers you today. If you'd like to do that, then just pray this prayer with me. Lord God, I'm a sinner. And I need to be forgiven. And today, Jesus, I'm turning from my sins into you to be my Savior. Jesus, I ask that you come into my life today. That you save me. I want to follow you and I want to live my life for you. Will you help me, Jesus, to do that? Today, I'm trusting in you and I'm accepting your death as the payment for my sins, which is death. I believe that you died for me and you rose again from the dead, showing that you are indeed God. And today, God, I'm coming to you. Thank you for the great gift of new life that I have. Through you, Jesus, my precious Savior. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, there are men and women at the front. They would love to talk to you. I'll be at the front. We want to make sure that you understand that first step of faith that you just took. And for the rest of us who already know the Lord, God tells us to walk in faith, to step out into the wind and the waves, knowing that we have a safe harbor and God is at work in us, that what we are going through today is not being wasted, but he is growing and maturing us and he's using us for his glory. So as we leave today, let's go into the world and be used for his glory. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.